Well, Father, it's with anticipation that we take our Bibles now and open them to receive from you. And so will you please take your word and use it well in our lives through the ministry of your Holy Spirit as you do so often at times like these. Father, we would yield ourselves over willingly to live lives of obedience. May you encourage the church and challenge sinners now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20 as we go out with the old and we bring in the new. As you're turning, I was um, thinking yesterday as I was driving, I had multiple occasions yesterday to be reminded of how life is filled with changes. Now we live in a culture and in a society that that tends to enjoy bringing change to us, but I have noticed that most of us, on an ongoing basis in our personal world, like things to be stable. And change is important. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. We had the early soccer game yesterday morning, and so I drove Jonathan in to Shepherdstown to the fields at 7.30 a.m., and As we drove out of Shenandoah Junction on Ridge Road, there on the right is a nice brick home that I've noticed before. I don't know the folks who've lived there. And I noticed that the auctioneer had his signs up and he had his orange cones out in the middle of the road. And there were young men and women preparing for a sale. There's something about those times that strike a chord in my heart. It occurred to me that... uh, Somebody had lived in that house for a long time. Somebody had that home all set up. And and then one Saturday morning, they were glad the sun was shining yesterday because they wanted to make more money on their stuff. And some 17-year-old kid making 10 bucks an hour went in their living room and took their pictures off the wall and went and got their dressers and took them out on the lawn and went in his garage and got his tools and laid them out across. And they hoped for many people to come. But I imagine that they got pennies to the pound for what it was worth. And I thought, there's a family as I drove, there's a family that has lived there. Perhaps they've raised their children there. And now, it's over. It's all done. They'll never brush their teeth at that sink again. She'll never open that refrigerator door again. He'll never get yelped at again about sweeping out the garage. They'll never have to worry about cobwebs and dirty windows. It's over. I wondered about them. I wondered, what was their life story? Where were they now? Um, Were they in a nursing home? Had someone quite suddenly entered eternity? Maybe their adult children were now responsible to liquidate the estate. And I thought to myself, How quickly our lives are lived and are over. How important it is that we live well. Well, a few hours later, I was reminded after soccer practice that Jonathan and I, he's now 13, went to the woods to the archery shoot, to the 3D bow shoot. You've been reading about it in the announcements. What a wonderful time for outdoorsmen we had. And thank you, Rich, for your good work on that oversight. And this year, Jonathan had a real bow and was shooting 
in a sense, like a real man and didn't have the little Walmart bow with the Walmart arrows. And I thought, it's the end of an era. I now have a young man who's got strong arms and the little kid's toys are a thing of the past. So is the price of his new equipment. (laughs) Life goes by quickly, doesn't it? And you know, we don't get to script our days. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. We are so limited on knowing what's ahead. And so as we look at the passages today and we wrap up this end time series, it is interesting to me that God gives us fairly detailed insight into how the world's going to end, but we have such limited insight as to how our lives will end. And so it's with a pastor's heart that I preach this morning and wrap up our series that you have been challenged that and I, I know there's many unanswered questions and the eschatological prophetic passages of our Bibles are not easy to, to interpret and to exegete and, and we could go on for many, many more weeks. We're just not going to do that. We're going to kind of finish it and I hope that you've gotten out of it the fact that God has given us a timeline and God has given us some warnings and God has shown us snapshots of what's to come. And so this morning... As we wrap up and we talk about the things that are going to bring the world to an end, I want you to realize that the Bible could hardly be clearer on any subject than it is on the fact that the Lord will return. That is a repeated theme. It is also astounding how clear it is that everything's going to change one day. It's all going to change. And so my challenge for you today, as we look at how God is going to reshape and create a whole new heavens, and a whole new earth, that it will motivate you to living well. We know how the story's going to end, but what about your story? How is your life going to end? And today, if the Lord tarries and lets the message unfold for the hours up, would you examine your heart? Would you think with clarity about your destiny? you stop and think about it, it really doesn't matter who unhooks your pictures from the walls and what they do with your stuff from your garage. What really matters, the end of the story, is is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And will you step into glory where all things will be new? It's going to be glorious. It's going to be marvelous. And oh, the significance of not knowing your eternal destiny. Well, where we left off last week was here at the end of our tribulation period. We'll not take time to review our whole timeline of history. Where we're at over here is a reminder of the the seals being broken and the seal judgments coming out and the seven angels with their trumpet judgments and then the seven angels with their bowl judgments as they poured out the wrath of God and we look quite closely at that. We've talked about the fact that the the church will be raptured and there is that snatching away, meeting the Lord in the air and Him not coming down to touch the earth with His feet, but meeting Him in the air and and that right here at the end of this seven-year time frame, and I hope you kind of can think it now a little bit from our repetitious reviews, that this is the second coming of Christ and this was the great 
misnamed Battle of Armageddon, the great slaughter of Armageddon. Do you remember the vultures eating the guy's eyeballs? I was told by one papa when he left this morning, he said, man, I got home from work the other day, and he said, my son, my 11-year-old son said, Dad, do you know that in the end times, the vultures are going to eat people's eyes out? And uh, he said, he doesn't always listen to the message, but he got that much out last week. (laughs) That's in chapter 19. Let's let our eyes look there, shall we? Because we want to remind ourselves who it is that splits the sky. We want to remind ourselves that it's not a meek and lowly Jesus coming in on a borrowed donkey with people waving branches. It is no longer that. As he approaches Jerusalem this time, it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And and there's no messing around. John says, I saw heaven standing open in 1911. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, indicative of a conqueror. And his name is the word of God. This is none other than our Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the word, the word of God incarnate. The armies of heaven were to follow him, for following him. No doubt the church, no doubt the resurrection, resurrected tribulation martyrs, no doubt angels riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last week on the way out, somebody said to me, So Pastor Van, Jesus is wearing a tattoo. And they got me good, didn't they? Because on his thigh, he has stamped a name. I sure hope no one left our church over my tattoo remarks. There it is. Jesus wears tattoos, so so can you, right? And then you know what happened. The armies of the earth were gathering as we read the rest of the passage. But there he was, King Jesus on that horse. And this is where this happens at the end of the seven weeks. The seven weeks divided by two three-and-a-half-year terms. The three-and-a-half marked in the middle by the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist launches himself as a supreme prince over at least ten jurisdictions of the globe. There is evidently some infighting perhaps at the end. These armies are gathering. They all hate Israel. The one thing you can count on, the nations of the world hate Israel. That's why you need to pray for our president, pray for our country to stand with Israel. They hate Israel, and they continue to hate Israel. And in a thousand years, they're going to still hate Israel. And they come across the dried-up rivers. Remember, there's an earthquake right here. Remember that from last week? An earthquake like no earthquake that's ever happened before. It reconfigures the topography of the globe. It elevates Jerusalem. It splits the city in three parts. Jesus himself's feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives and split it in half. As a conquering king, he comes, and these armies have marched across the dry rivers there. They've met and convened at Megiddo, and and the battle, quote-unquote, takes place. Perhaps there was confusion like an Old Testament story. 
perhaps the bloodbath had began, but clearly, the word is clear, what happens? And from with the sword out of his mouth, he strikes them all dead. And then the birds that the angels, and we talked about the vultures, had gathered, the angel had called them in, and they feasted on the flesh of the dead kings and their armies. There they are. And so this great king of kings is the, the hero of the story. Don't miss that if you miss anything else. That the rider on the white horse is the conquering king. He's the great king. And this morning, to wrap up the end of the story, we're going to see that that the old will go out and there's a whole new world coming. And it's all under the orchestration of the great king. So I want to tell you six things, at least, that happen now in chapter 20, in the beginning of 21 this morning. Six things that the great king is going to do. Beginning with number one in chapter 20. The great king, number one, will first of all incarcerate Satan. He will incarcerate Satan. Let's look at chapter 20. All the birds at the end of 19 are gorging themselves on flesh. 20 verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he locked and he sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. That's interesting, isn't it? It also raises questions. and, And certainly I think that you've realized in our prophetic study here that We can't always know everything that John is describing to us, and we try to let the Bible explain itself. And when you add in the visions of Ezekiel, the visions of Zechariah, the visions of Daniel and their prophetic writings, you compare it and the the prophetic teaching even of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Olivet Discourse, it comes together and you begin to see some shape and you see things happening. But even then... We see through a glass darkly, and it's difficult for us to put it all together. And even now, what is that? What does it mean? An angel comes with a chain. Is this a literal angel, a literal logging chain? He's going to grab Satan, wrap him up in a chain. What is the abyss? The Bible only gives us these snapshots. You know that we fight to to understand the meaning of words and to let words communicate and to not try to change the meaning of a text by reading into words that we have no permission to change their definition. And so you say, well, Pastor Van, you're literal. Is that a literal chain? Well, remember, John is having a vision and he's looking into the spirit world. And so it does not seem likely that it would be a literal logging chain that an angel would come and sling around Satan and throw him in this abyss. Somehow, spiritually speaking, Satan is bound. By the way, do you know that you cannot bind Satan? You cannot bind Satan. Don't go around trying to bind Satan. He's more than you can handle, but he's not more than the one who's in you can handle. And he's on a leash that God has given him and that Christ is in control of. And this angel is given permission and this angel has the strength to go and spiritually bind him at the right time. And he will no longer be able to deceive the nations. Imagine a world without the prince of the power of the air dominating the world system, deceiving people. And he is bound and he is put in the abyss. What is the abyss? Some people call it a bottomless pit. Is it a literal place? I take it to be that 
in the spiritual world and we're too limited in our physical bodies to look out into the spiritual world. God doesn't give us permission to do that. But in the spiritual world, there is this abyss. We've seen it before and we've seen demons come out of it. You've heard internet stories and news stories. A a few years ago, this was pretty popular. They were drilling some deep coal or oil search over, I believe, in the in the former USSR, and they were drilling like five miles down. Don't correct me if I'm wrong. It just means a long time. I don't really mean five miles, okay? But see, I explained myself. And they're drilling deep down. And they began to hear sounds of of wailing and weeping, and, and they construed it to be gnashing of teeth. And they said, down in the ground, there it is. It's where the demons are. It's where hell is. I don't put a lot of stock in that. But you have some kind of a spiritual vacuum that somehow the angel has permission by God through the power of God who is over all things to bind Satan, put him in this spiritual vacuum, put the cap on it, and he is unable to escape. This is not the eternal destiny of Satan yet. We'll see that in a minute. But the first thing the great king does is he incarcerates Satan. That much is clear. We're then also introduced to a concept that there's a thousand years that they're talking about. Now, what's that all about? He says he will not be allowed to deceive the nations anymore, verse 3, until the thousand years were ended. So it looks like, it's a, at the least, it's a, it's a literal time frame, isn't it? It has a beginning and it has an end. And then he adds the final statement that Satan, after that time, needs to be released again. So it appears that we're talking about a literal time frame, aren't we? The text doesn't give us permission to understand it any other way, as far as I can see. And so some people try to spiritualize it. Some people say that Satan has been bound ever since Jesus died on the cross. Satan is the prince of power of the air. He seeks, he roams this earth, seeking whom he may devour. There's too much scriptural evidence against the fact that Satan is bound at this time. But Satan will be bound. He will be incarcerated by the great king. And then six times now in the passage, he's going to use the phrase a thousand years. What is that? After the end of the thousand years, he must be set free. So I take it, okay, Christ has returned. The slaughter at Armageddon takes place. Christ sets up a kingdom, and I don't know of any other way to understand it than, and we'll look at some more passages in just a minute, that Christ now will set up a kingdom and it will last a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released for a short season. We'll see it in the text. The great king, number one, incarcerates Satan. Number two, he inaugurates his kingdom. Let's read verses four through six. He inaugurates his kingdom on earth. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. What are those thrones? I don't know. The Bible's not totally clear. What are these thrones? Who's been given the authority to sit on them? We do know that back in the Gospels in Matthew, Jesus had told his disciples, he said, in the coming kingdom, you will sit on thrones and you will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel with me. What was he talking about? Heaven? I think he was talking about this time where he would have a a reigning fulfillment of a kingdom in David's throne right here on this earth from Jerusalem and there will evidently be real people on the earth 
and there will be people in their resurrected bodies on earth at the same time. Woo! I'm with you. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Those are the tribulation martyrs. We know that there will be a bloodbath for those who refuse the mark of the beast on their head or their hand. We know that already they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. That's a resurrection. And they reigned with Christ a thousand years. They did what? They reigned with Christ. That means he has a kingdom and he's ruling. And then it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And here it is again. And will reign with him for a thousand years. These tribulation martyrs will be resurrected to reign with Christ, to reign with the apostles, to reign with the church. And in parentheses, John says, the rest of the dead don't come to life until the thousand years are ended. I looked at that a little bit this week, and I don't know who that is. Kind of the accepted premillennial view on that is that that is the pagans, that is the sinners. And that the resurrection of the unjust will happen at the end of the millennium. Those who die without Christ. But I don't know. I just don't know. So, give you some homework. Figure it out. The great king incarcerates Satan and then the great king inaugurates his earthly reign. Six times he says, there's going to be a thousand years. He references it as reigning with thrones This is a time that we call the millennium. It's interesting that the word millennium is not in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about it. It is interesting that there is a significant list of prophetic passages that indicate that there is a kingdom where Christ will literally rule the earth. There will be a reconfiguration of the earth as we know it and systems as we know it. It is evidently a time where Christ will personally fulfill specific prophecies about his relationship with Israel, sitting on his father David's throne, and he will rule from Jerusalem, and it will fulfill many prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel. It is an interesting study. It is not an easy study. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, and let me show you a, a sampling of this kind of passage, and you tell me what it, what it means if it doesn't mean that there is going to be some kind of a special Christ-ruled era, and I don't understand how to make it anything other than a thousand years, because that's what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 11, take a look at what it says. This is probably the most well-known passage. And it talks about some things that many of you will recognize that are included in the millennial kingdom. We call this era the millennial kingdom. A thousand years where Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem, I take it. The earth's surface being reconfigured by the great earthquake like no other earthquake. Remember it said... The sea flees, the mountains fall down. I take it that topographically the earth has been smoothed out some and it's set up for a whole different era of this thousand-year time. 
Notice that other systems that we are familiar with have changed as well. Okay, here we go. Isaiah chapter 11, right away with verse 1. Look what it says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, so out of Jesse, that's David, King David's father, David who killed Goliath, David the first king of Israel, uh, second king of Israel. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, capital B, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He doesn't have to see or hear. He already knows everything. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. I don't think we're talking about the eternal state yet. The poor of the earth he will judge. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 19? With the breath of his mouth he wipes him out and then there's a change. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Look at this. This is what you kind of know about a little bit. You've heard about. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria and all these other places. We'll stop there. What is that all about? Listen, there are probably at least a dozen passages that read similarly, that seem to point to this time of of a reign of Christ. The most that this thousand years has ever mentioned is what we just read in Revelation chapter 20. And it's evidently a time when we already know that Satan is incarcerated in the vacuum, the spiritual vacuum of the abyss. He is unable to deceive people. Christ is evidently ruling from David's throne. Jerusalem has been elevated even geographically. There's going to be a thousand-year period. It is a peaceful time. I take it that the earth will repopulate. There's even more landmass probably than ever and less sea water from the earthquake's reconfiguration. You say, where will all these people come from? Well, not all the, all the, the vultures will be eating all the armies that amass. The rest of the world will still be populated. Some of them will die at the end. Others will live, evidently, when the Lord returns right into this thousand-year period. There either won't be death in the lifespan that we know it, or it will be a longer lifespan. There won't be sin. There's a reconfiguration of the, of the biological networks of our world. And a calf and a grizzly bear will eat out of the same uh, feeding trough. The bear evidently is no longer carnivorous. That means eat meat, right? And, and he's eating straw with the calf. And a baby can play with poisonous snakes. 
And so things are, what does that mean? And when you study these passages, it doesn't seem to be that this is yet the eternal state. And so we have this millennial kingdom of the great king. And so these people will, will live on, and even believers in Christ, because those who don't take the mark of the beast on their hand or their head, not all of them are probably going to be killed. You know, there's probably some that no places to go hide. There will be huge slaughter and termination of the life and execution of believers who refuse the mark. But, but there will be little canyons up in British Columbia somewhere where some people hide out. And there will be some little back village in Malawi where believers will hang out. And, and they will live through all this. And they will evidently come into this thousand years time and, and with the peace and with Satan bound, the world's going to repopulate and there will evidently be a population of just millions. It's going to be described as the sand of the seashore in a minute. Let's go back to Revelation 20. And let's quickly look at what happens next. The great king, number one, will incarcerate Satan Number two, he will inaugurate his kingdom on earth. Number three, the next thing we see in our passage, beginning with verse seven, is that he will incinerate his enemies. He will incinerate his enemies. Look what it says, verse seven. So when the thousand years are over, see there's a beginning and there's an ending. I take this to be a literal time frame. Satan will then be released from his prison and will go out and he will deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Did a little more looking into Gog and Magog and I'm less conclusive than ever. A way you could interpret that or put in there is this. There's Bible school students debate, well, who's Gog and Magog? Is Gog a reference of a person or a ruler, Magog a country, or vice versa, whatever? You could pencil in there the enemies of God. Gog and Magog are those who are the enemies of God. They gather them for battle, and in number, look what it says, they are like the sand of the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp. See, even there's a clue that the sea water isn't, the oceans aren't quite the same anymore. They march across the breadth of the earth. And it could be that they took ships and planes, I don't know to surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. That's Jerusalem. Now notice what happens. The millennium has been repopulated. Jesus Christ rules with the rod of Jesse. It's a perfect system of justice. People are born. The earth is repopulated. I don't have complete grasp in my thinking of our role and who exactly rules with Christ and reigns with him. I think the apostles are active in this ruling. So there is, as I said, people in their resurrected bodies interacting with people with physical bodies. And then Satan, at the end of the thousand years, is released from the abyss and immediately does his work again. Think of it as though you were living in the Garden of Eden and we have Garden of Eden 2. We've got Jesus himself ruling and God is just showing people that the bent and the thoughts and the desires of their hearts are evil all the time. And that an unregenerate man doesn't choose to do right on his own, even living in a millennial kingdom system. And they're vulnerable to Satan's deception. He comes in. There's evidently been a rebuilding of of nation building around the world. I, I don't, I cannot totally explain this. These armies come together. It is clear to me that they still, under Satan's orchestration, hate 
Israel. And look what it says. He then incinerates his enemies. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Boom. What is that? I take it. You have the great slaughter at Armageddon. You have the millennial kingdom at the the thousand years. It is totally clear that Satan will be released. It is absolutely clear that he deceives once again the nations of the earth. It is absolutely clear once again that there is another advance against Israel. It is absolutely clear that fire falls from heaven and incinerates the enemies of God. I get that much out of it. I think this is a good time to comment about the phrase... They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you know that there has been a growing movement in the last about 25 years to redefine the everlasting nature of the punishment of the unjust that the Bible talks about? There has been a growing movement towards the topic or the belief in what we would call annihilationism. It is the belief that the destruction of the lost or the destruction of those or the the punishment of those who do not know Christ is not an everlasting punishment, but that it is a punishment that will have a season to it and then they will poof, be annihilated. They will be out of existence. They will no longer exist. There is also a common teaching among many that there is a purgatorial type punishment. That is, that if you die without being quite right with God, you will go to a hell and you will pay a certain punishment for your, your sin and then after a certain season, you will be able to translate out of that and get to heaven. The Bible teaches neither of those and I want to say just enough to give you an understanding that first of all, clearly the language of Scripture does not permit those teachings. It's not there. You will see in this passage, for example, this is talking about the beast and the false prophet who have already been pitched into the eternal lake of fire. In a minute, we're going to see that, that hell and death and suffering get pitched in there. Satan gets thrown in after the destruction of the lost, at the end of the millennium, Satan is now forever and ever, it says, put into the eternal lake of fire. The language is clear, and that language is reinforced clearly in the Gospels by the teaching of our Lord Jesus, for example. He regularly talked about an eternal punishment. He talked about uh, it going on for an everlasting season. The Apostle Paul reinforced it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul clearly stated that there will be an everlasting punishment of those who reject Christ. But here's the main point I want you to get out of this, because you can do a study on this. And there are influential writers who are trying to redefine the everlasting nature of the punishment of hell. But here's what you have to do. Do you know that No one is writing books trying to say that the everlasting life of bliss and joy of the saved with God in heaven is a seasonal joy, and after a while, poof, you're annihilated. It's only the everlasting life of the damned. 
It seems too heinous. It seems too difficult that a loving God would let that happen. But here's what you have to do. You have to take your Bible and you have to change John 3.16 and you have to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life for a while. Poof, then you're annihilated. Because it is the exact same word for everlasting life with God that the phrases are used, everlasting punishment. And I'll tell you, this is a huge topic. In seminaries, you can write big papers on it. But think about this. The reason we don't like the heinous doctrine of the eternal lake of fire and the reason it doesn't seem fair to us is because we don't understand two things. Number one, we don't understand the offensive nature of sin in the face of a holy God. And number two, we have yet to comprehend how God is going to use that for his own glory. Somehow all of this lifts Jesus up to his proper place. Let's quickly wrap up. The great king will incarcerate Satan... He will inaugurate his earthly kingdom. He will incinerate his enemies, including Satan. They will live in an eternal existence in the eternal lake of fire. The next thing, and we've talked about this not too long ago, number four, the great king will then evaluate the lost. He will evaluate the lost. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, John said, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. You see that? You see, if somebody dies without Christ right now, they go to a place called Hades or hell. We use that word a lot. Well, you shouldn't, but it's kind of a pulpit word that people use, you know. And they tell people to go there every once in a while. And if you went there, you could go there. The best way to understand it, as far as I can tell from the Bible, is Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We've reviewed that here many times. And somehow there is a holding place for the damned. There is a holding place for the lost. And it's called hell. And it is a place of torment where the rich man begged that the poor man Lazarus would be able to go back and get some water and put it on the tip of his finger and touch his lips and give him relief for just a second. And he begged him to go tell his brothers. And remember, he, he was told that if they don't believe Abraham and the prophets And Moses and the prophets, they don't believe what their Old Testament teaches them. They're not even going to believe if somebody comes from the dead, and that would be include Jesus Christ. Who's following Christ? He came back from the dead. They don't believe him. And so it's a place, and that hell, wherever it is right now in the spirit world, this place of torment, will literally be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. There evidently will be a moment where the people who inhabit... The lost who have died without Christ and are in hell will get out to be evaluated by the king, the great king who sits on the white throne. Did you catch that? And then it says the books are opened and it made it sound like it's a work system. And it said they will be evaluated based upon what they have done. 
Whether it's good or evil, and their, their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're going to be cast in the eternal lake of fire. What's that all about? I thought it was all about grace. It is. Praise God. The point is that the books will be opened, and I take the great white throne judgment to be a judgment of the lost. I don't believe that's a judgment where saved people will be. And it will be a judgment where lost people who have rejected Christ momentarily before they are everlastingly sent to the eternal lake of fire will be shown by the works of their lives that they are without the righteousness of Christ. James said, James said clearly, in a very controversial verse, James 1.24, he said, don't you know that we're justified by works and not, not just by the blood of Christ? What's his point? It's very confusing to many. The idea is that he was teaching the fact that if you are saved, you will show it with your life. And so in, he said, one way you can show your salvation is to examine the works of your life, and you can prove my salvation. You ought to be able to prove your salvation by examining the works of your life. You don't get saved by good works, but you do good works because you are saved. I don't want to be con confusing. And I take it that this great white throne that the great king sits on and all out of hell and all the resurrection of the lost will come the end of the thousand years. They will raise, be raised up to come in this presence of the great white throne. And it says the books will be opened. And I take it the books are a record of their lives. And they'll say, but I'm not that bad. And the books will be opened. And they'll say, oh, yeah. But I really want that. And the books are, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And the book of their heart will be, oh, I forgot I used to feel that way. And those thoughts about, and the books will be opened and the page is turned and they'll say, oh, no, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then the book is opened and it shows that they are none of his. And then it says, they're cast in the eternal lake of fire. Has to be, these few verses, the most horrific verses of the Bible. Representing the most horrific moments a person could ever experience to stand before the great king on the great throne because all judgment is given to the son. And I take it it's none other than Jesus himself on the great white throne, suspended in a vacuum. Heaven and earth have fled away. And the lost of the world come before him. And it is shown to them that they are not his. And they are unable to enter his presence of eternal life in heaven. And they are cast into the eternal lake of fire. It's no wonder we would change our doctrine and come up with a better system than that. Somehow God will explain it to us later. If anyone's name, verse 15, was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So the great king will evaluate the lost. Notice what's happened already, and I take it that this has happened at the time when Satan is thrown into hell, and I don't understand the total sequence of events. I wish I could more clearly understand it. And I've not read anybody who makes it crystal clear. But there is this moment, notice in verse 11, earth and sky fled from his presence. Notice 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then the fifth thing the great king is going to do is he's going to evaporate the universe. He's going to evaporate the universe. So you got what he's done? Number one, he incarcerates Satan. Number two, he inaugurates his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Number three, he incinerates his enemies. Number four, he will evaluate the lost. Number five, he will evaporate the universe. 
It has fled from his presence. You could write down 2 Peter chapter 3. There is at least five different passages in our New Testament that talk about the, the destruction of the present universe, that it will be with fire. It will be out with the old and in with the new. It will be some kind of a, a torching. Bible students debate whether the earth will just be scorched and then made new or if it will actually be uncreated and then a whole new earth will be created. But we are now talking about the creation of, the, of heaven, of the eternal state. It will be the remaking of a new earth and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the sixth thing. After he evaporates the universe, 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12 Number six, he will initiate the eternal state. He will initiate the eternal state. Let's read about it. Verse, chapter 21, verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They evaporated, see? And there was no longer any sea. In the new heaven and the new earth, you can't think of it like this earth. I'll show you. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I take it it, is, it includes the very bride of Christ, the church, saints. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Look at this. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, I take it none other than the great king, says, I am making everything new. And then he said to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to him who is thirsty, I will give a drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the sinful, he goes on to say, have no place with me. It's an incredible passage of scripture, isn't it? What's he talking about? There's at least six things he says in the passage that will be gone. He starts with the sea. Did you see that in verse 1? The end of verse 1, he says, there was no longer any sea. So here's how I take it in short. The universe as we know it has been uncreated. It has been just evaporated. So how could that happen? Just wait and see. How did creation happen? Ex nihilo, out of nothing, bam! In the mind of God, he thought it and it happened. See, we think too small about God. And then he can uncreate it in the same way that he created it. And then a new heavens and a new earth. But we know from other passages of Scripture, as I've referenced 2 Peter 3, and these passages that there will be a fire that will somehow cleanse the earth and reshape it or evaporate it, and then a new heaven and a new earth, and it says, and everything is made new, and it says, there is no longer any sea. I take it to be, there's not going to be water on the face of the earth that's like we know it. And then he says, there's not going to be any more tears, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning, and there will be no more crying, and there will be no more pain. He says at the end of verse 4, for the old order of things has passed away. What does he mean? Listen, the, bi the biological systems and ecosystems of our world, the astronomical systems of our world, the hydro cycle of rain and dryness and storms and growth, 
Everything's changed. It's a whole new order. You might not even have gravity in this world. One plus one might not equal two in this world. It's a whole new order. In the mind of God, a whole new system is created. And I take it in John 14 when he said, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That that was the new Jerusalem he was preparing. And this earth will be suspended in a, in a nothing universe. This new heaven and a new earth, the earth will be suspended in this new heaven. I don't know if it will have galaxies or not. It's a whole new order. It doesn't relate to what we know about this order. And this new Jerusalem and all the rest of chapter 21 is about the heavenly city. It gives its dimensions all about it. It's the throne room of God. It's the dwelling place of saints. It will come, and I take it, be suspended in the sky above this new earth. Some people think it will be set down on it. It's, it's difficult to tell for sure. We will have access into it. That's where there's streets of gold, this whole new earth. We do know there'll be no marrying. There'll be no more babies born. We'll live in bliss in eternity with God. Oh, until we're annihilated. Poof. Oh, no, no. Forever and ever. Verse 5, don't you love that? For I am making all things new. Do you ever think about how much of your life is dominated by the fact that you're sick, have pain, and need to, need to take care of your ailments? A whole lot of our world is filled with having to go to school, go to work, to pay our bills, to go to the doctor, to take care of the gout in my knee or my big toe, if that's where gout goes, I don't know. Take it all away. It's a whole new order. It's a whole new system. And there it is. The old is gone and the new has come. That's pretty radical change, isn't it? Pretty radical change. So, you know, I don't know when some 17-year-old punk might come and take pictures out of your living room and put them out on the lawn so that hopefully somebody will give at least $12 for it. And I don't know what the course and direction of your life will be. It does matter. But I do know that God gives us enough insight to know that the major change that's coming will affect all people who have ever lived everywhere at any time. And that all people who have ever lived anywhere of any time will spend eternity in one of two destinies. I don't quite get it all. That's why I'm quitting this series. I've had enough. The pastor's had enough. If the pastor's had enough, the people have had enough. I think God's used it. He's used it in my life. I can understand enough to know that I sure well better be ready in case the trumpet blows and he comes back. All people everywhere of all times will spend their eternal destiny in one of two places, in everlasting bliss in the new system under the watch of the great king who is going to make all things new, or they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. That makes the cross, a very precious thing. Because God gives us this life to prepare for the next life. And so as you try to script out your life and as you try to make sure you accomplish everything you want to accomplish in the next few years that you might have or might not have, you had better make sure that you come via the cross and you better humble yourself at the cross. Yes, it's foolishness to the watching world. But the cross is precious to us because this is where Jesus went and took the sin of the world upon himself so that sinners like us could come 
and we could find forgiveness. Because he alone was the one who came, God in the flesh, who satisfied the wrath of a holy God. In fact, God himself, it was his plan to send him because we were stuck. We could do nothing on our own. But God loved us so much that even while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us so that we could come to a place of admitting our sinfulness, receiving the forgiveness that is in Christ, receiving the righteousness that is in Christ. So now that when God looks at me, I'm a new creation in Christ. He doesn't see me and my sinful stupidity. He sees the righteousness of Christ. I've got, I am, I am robed in his righteousness. And I am secure. And my name is in the Lamb's book of life. And I know that I will be part of the new order of things based upon no merit of my own, but based upon the righteousness of Christ and the promises of his word. That's all we have, my friend. So you have this moment. You don't know what the next moment's going to bring. Examine your heart, will you? Will you receive the forgiveness that is in Christ if you haven't done it already? Will you stop thinking it is nonsense and recognize that it is the authoritative word of God and it is written for you? It is God giving his word to you. Let's bow in prayer. Will you examine your heart with your head bowed? Do you know that you know the forgiveness of sin that is in Christ? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't totally understand this, but this is what the Bible says. And Jesus said, come unto him. All you who are troubled and needy and heavy burdened, and he'll give you rest, rest from your sin. He'll take your sin that he already paid the price for at the cross, and he will give you his righteousness. You'll be forgiven in the eyes of a holy God, secure forever. Saved now to do good works that God has ordained and appointed for you to do. How do you do this? You admit your sinfulness. You believe the word of God is true and you accept his forgiveness that is in Christ. You might say something like this to your God, This morning, I recognize and I admit my sinfulness and I believe that Jesus Christ alone paid the price for my sin at the cross. Father, I I unload my sinfulness on him and I receive your forgiveness that is in Christ. Something along that concept where you receive the forgiveness that's in Christ. And then go from here and forget the past, stop talking about the past and live for Jesus in the future. The sin is gone. The old is gone and the new has come. So Father, will you do your work in us? Challenge us? The hearts that are tender and that need Christ, would you please give them clarity in their thinking that they would put their faith and trust in Christ right now. Have their sin forgiven by the work that's in the cross. Drop the scales off their eyes as only you can do. Father, may we be faithful as we wait for your return now. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the challenge of your word. May we 
live godly lives in this present age, waiting for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.